Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From the pages of The New Yorker, this is the Weekly Comment Podcast. In Autumn of the Patriarchy, David Remnick delves into the Weinstein moment and the Trump presidency. In 1975, Susan Brown Miller published a startling and controversial volume in the literature of feminism. It was called Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape. Deploying a wide range of examples from history, criminology, psychoanalysis, mythology, and popular culture, Brown Miller came to a provocative conclusion about the origins of the patriarchal order. Man's discovery that his genitalia could serve as a weapon to generate fear, she wrote, must rank as one of the most important discoveries of prehistoric times, along with the use of fire and the first crude stone axe. Sexual coercion and the threat of its possibility in the street, in the workplace, and in the home, she found, is less a matter of frenzied lust than a deliberate exercise of physical power, a declaration of superiority designed to intimidate and inspire fear. Brown Miller chronicled the use of rape as a weapon in warfare, from classical antiquity to Vietnam, its role in the history of marital and property rights, the grotesque way that it shapes our notions of masculinity and femininity. Some of her arguments, particularly those pertaining to race, met with strong and convincing resistance from such critics as Angela Davis. Brown Miller's treatment of the Emmett Till case reads today as morally obvious. Yet, against our will, remains an important prod to our understanding of the social order. One of the most pernicious myths, Brown Miller wrote, is that women cry rape with ease and glee. As Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhey in The Times and Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker have made plain in their recent reporting on the Harvey Weinstein case, women who speak up about sexual predation do so with extreme difficulty and dread. Rumors persisted for years that Weinstein, a film producer and distributor of extraordinary influence, set out to defile and degrade countless women, and, using the instruments of his power, jobs, payoffs, non-disclosure agreements, expensive lawyers and private investigators, he sought to keep them silent. That so many women have summoned the courage to make public their allegations against Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Roger Ailes, and Bill O'Reilly, or that many have come to reconsider some of the claims made against Bill Clinton, represents a cultural passage. An immense cohort of victims and potential victims now feel a sense of release. Suddenly, a number of issues are in play. What constitutes harassment? What relation is there between the worst offenses and more ambiguous ones, between physical assault and verbal slights? What are fair guidelines and sanctions? Do men really understand the ways that harassment can diminish and undermine a woman? These questions resonate far beyond Hollywood and the media, in less publicized places of work. They are, in a sense, a resumption of the discussions of 1991, when Anita Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that a Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas, had harassed her repeatedly when he was her supervisor. Perhaps times are changing. Thomas won confirmation. He donned a robe and took his place on the court. Weinstein, according to some news reports, may soon find himself in court too, but in less comforting circumstances. The Weinstein moment is also a chapter in the Trump presidency. When the news broke about Weinstein, Trump declared that he was not at all surprised. 
He seemed intent on signaling that he was in the know, a man of the world. And yet his knowingness comes from a different source. His own history, and that history is a disgrace. A year ago, on election night, when the most decisive precincts in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin began to yield their results, there was shock and a deep sense of offense among countless Americans at the prospect of seeing Trump in the Oval Office. There were many ways to frame and understand the election, but one was surely this. A cartoonish misogynist had defeated an intelligent feminist. Hillary Clinton, the first woman to have a genuine chance to be president, lost to someone who had flaunted his contempt for women generally and for her personally, even prowling behind her during a nationally televised debate. Trump has indulged in more scandalous behavior than is easy to recount. For some reason, his record of misogyny, both in language and acts, his running compendium of self-satisfied creepiness, the accumulated complaints against him of sexual harassment and assault, all denied, of course, have attracted only modest attention, one defamation lawsuit and no congressional interest. The specificity of these accusations by a former Miss Utah, by a reporter for People, by several former teenage beauty pageant contests, by his ex-wife, Ivana, who said that he had torn out a patch of her hair and violated her, is disturbing. Breast-groping, crotch-grabbing, unwanted kisses on the mouth. This is the President of the United States. Before the election, Gia Tolentino determined for this magazine that 24 women had corroborated Trump's own boasting, and 20 have come forward publicly, none with ease and glee. As always happens when someone accuses a high-profile man of sexual misconduct, these women will be tied to their unpleasant, formerly private stories for life, Tolentino wrote. There may be hope, however. According to some assessments, a pivotal factor in last week's elections was a sense of disgust with the president, and one of the results was a sharp increase in the number of female candidates and winners. Stephanie Shryock, the president of EMILY's List, recently announced that more than 20,000 women had declared themselves candidates for public office, a gigantic spike, according to a detailed report by Christina Cotarucci in Slate. Donald Trump, with Steve Bannon drawing battle plans, believes that he is the initiator of a great culture war in America. But it may turn out to be a war of a very different kind, with a very different result. It seems to be occurring to more and more Americans that Trump would not pass muster before any decent Department of Human Resources. And if he would surely be disqualified from running a movie studio, a newsroom, or a medium-sized insurance firm, how is it that he presides over the most important office in the land? That was Autumn of the Patriarchy by David Remnick from The New Yorker magazine, November 20th, 2017. Narrated by Jamie Rennell. Also in the magazine this week, Taylor Clark on Twitch. Tad Friend on Ageism. Sheila Kolhatkar on Sexism in Tech. Elizabeth Colbert on carbon dioxide removal. Nathan Heller on Tina Brown and Jan Wenner. Leo Robson on Joseph Conrad. Hua Su on football manager. Andrew Morantz on Jordan Klepper. Anthony Lane on murder on the Orient Express and Thelma. 
Fiction by David Gilbert. Reflections from Juno Diaz, Sally Rooney, Daniel Arcon, Otessa Mosfeg, and Victor Laval, and more. Audible.com produces a weekly audio edition of The New Yorker. To subscribe or to download individual issues, we invite you to go to www.audible.com and enter New Yorker in the search box. To subscribe to the comment podcast, go to www.newyorker.com or to the New Yorker room on the iTunes store.